Welcome to the Shapes of Identity podcast. I'm Stephen Buller, and I'll be providing a brief introduction to why myself and Justin Schleider decided to start this podcast series. So to keep it simple, the Shapes of Identity podcast is a collaboration between Shape New Jersey and Shape Philly. Yeah, I shortened it to Philly. That's a uh, thing that we do in uh, Philadelphia, and we decided to do it as an organization. But beyond that, we're going to start here. So Justin Schleider and I have been discussing identity, how identity impacts us as humans, and how we felt that the topic area wasn't being addressed sufficiently within our professional organizations. So we wanted to start this discussion and create a podcast that's dedicated to breaking down identity so that we all can learn how it's shaped and how it impacts us as humans. Our goal is to use this podcast to focus on each identity group to develop a sense of belonging as well as provide an opportunity for our fellow educators and listeners to grow their practices. Our first episode is dedicated to the question, what is whiteness? This episode discusses how whiteness presents itself in our society and schools, provides an understanding how whiteness impacts humans, and provides takes on ways in which we can decenter whiteness in the classroom. So for today's discussion, we have Dr. Tara Blackshear, Val Brown, and Sherry Spalick. Um, Justin's not here at the moment, but he's going to be popping on for this discussion when we're done with the next section. So before we start, I just want to provide some definitions of concepts or ideas that you should consider before listening to the podcast, if you're not familiar with the terms, so you understand where we're coming from. So the first term, what is whiteness? This is taken from the National Museum of African American History and Culture. So whiteness and white racialized identity refer to the way that white people, their customs, culture, and beliefs operate as the standard by which all other groups are compared. Whiteness is also at the core of understanding race in America. Whiteness and the normalization of white racial identity throughout America's history have created a culture where non-white persons are seen as inferior or abnormal. This white dominant culture also operates as a social mechanism that grants advantages to white people since they can navigate society both by feeling normal and being viewed as normal. Persons who identify as white rarely have to think about their racial identity because they live within a culture where whiteness has been normalized. Thinking about race is very different for non-white persons living in America. People of color must always consider their racial identity whatever the situation, due to systemic and interpersonal racism that still exists. Whiteness and its accepted normality also exist as everyday microaggressions towards people of color. Acts of microaggressions include verbal, nonverbal, and environmental slights, snubs, or insults towards non-whites. This can happen whether it's intentional or not, these attitudes communicate hostile, derogatory, or harmful messages. So that's like a general 
definition. Like it's pretty specific from the National Museum of African American History and Culture, to, and that explains what whiteness is and where we're coming from. And there's another term that you'll hear pop up from time to time in the podcast, othering. And this is just a take from John A. Powell from a article on The Guardian. It's titled, Us Vs. Them, Sinister Techniques. Sinister Techniques of Othering and How to Avoid Them. Once again, this is by John A. Powell. So, Othering is not about liking or disliking someone. It is based on the conscious or unconscious assumption that a certain identified group poses a threat to the favored group. It is largely driven by politicians and the media as opposed to personal contact. Overwhelmingly, people don't know those that they are othering. Othering shows up in today's power structures, how it is used to divide and dehumanize groups and capture and reshape government and institutions, for society's leaders and culture play an oversized role in helping us make sense of change and so greatly affect our responses to anxiety. Othering is also another common tactic that you'll find in the rise of fascist demagogues. So you'll find that in a lot of works of people like Jason Stanley, um, Hannah Arendt. But to continue on, there was another group that provided a definition of othering to provide another example. So this is from otheringandbelonging.org. So they define othering as a set of dynamics, processes, and structures that engender marginality and persistent inequality across any of the full range of human differences based on group identities. Dimensions of othering include, but are not limited to, religion, sex, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status or class, disability, sexual orientation, and skin tone. And that would I would also include nationality, because sometimes people are stripped of their citizenship or belonging to a certain state, which is another process of othering. Um, although, although the axes of different difference that undergird these expressions of othering vary considerably and are deeply contextual. They contain a similar set of underlying dynamics. And then on the other hand, we have belonging, which will be brought up or is like a way to say inclusion. So this is from the same website, otheringandbelonging.org, or the same organization. So the term belonging connotates something fundamental about how groups are positioned within society, as well as how they are perceived and regarded. It reflects an objective position of power and resources as well as the intersubjective nature of group-based identities. Belongingness entails an unwavering commitment to not simply tolerating and respecting difference, but to ensuring that all people are welcome and feel that they belong in the society. They continue to say, belongingness must be more than expressive it must be institutionalized as well. To counteract othering, we must focus on providing access to resources and critical institutions to disadvantaged groups. At the same time, integration is necessary but not always sufficient. 
Many groups require more than access. They require special accommodations. That concludes the definitions portion. Um, so we're going to get started. And here we go. This is the very first episode of Shapes of Identity. So we're very excited. This is a joint project with Stephen Baller and myself with Shape Philly and Shape New Jersey, hence the whole Shapes of Identity, if you will. I, I was very proud of that. You know? Anyway, he was. I'm patting myself on the back in the first 30 seconds. Um, I'm Justin Schleider. I teach health right now for a fourth, fifth, and sixth grade school in central New Jersey. I'll turn it over to Stephen next. You want to do a quick intro for yourself? I'm from, well, not from Philadelphia, but I'm from central Pennsylvania. Uh, I teach in Philadelphia. I've on my moving on to my seventh year in Philly. Um, before that, I used to teach in the South Bronx. Um, I've tended, or I tend to teach in environments, whatever it happens, I tend to be usually the only white person in the classroom. So I've had a lot to learn over the years and this has been a great chance for Shape Philly to kind of start to make better progression towards, how shall we say, offering PDs and moments for teachers to think about how what we do actually impacts our students. So this is a great start. All right, there is a doctor in the house, at least one doctor. Dr. Blackshear is here. Can you introduce yourself, please? Hi, everyone. I'm Tara Blackshear. I'm an assistant professor at Towson University. Um, prior to that, I've had 17 years teaching around the world, um, health, physical education, and science in um, what Atlanta, trying to think all of all the places I've been, um, Atlanta, Georgia, Lexington, Kentucky, I'm missing one, Raleigh, North Carolina, Egypt, and Thailand. I was overseas for seven years with a brief stint at UNC Chapel Hill working on a national study to prevent type two diabetes um, in um, underserved and minoritized youth. So I'm happy to be here. Um, Justin and Steven, thank you for doing this. I, what you're doing takes courage. Um, you have demonstrated true allyship and I, I just, I'm so appreciative of the lead that you two are taking. So it's much appreciated. Thank you. We appreciate your time and knowledge as well. It's fantastic to have you on here. Let's go it to our next. amazing to have all three of you here today. This is like mm -hmm. a superstar lineup. It is, it is. We called in a lot of markers, people. <laughs> all right, we have next up, Sherry Spalitz. Sherry, you want to tell us about yourself, please? Hi, this is, I'm Sherry Spalitz, and uh, I teach elementary physical education at an uh, international school in Vienna, Austria. And I've been in my position for 25 years, apparently. Uh, I just found that out recently, and I thought, wow, 25 years already. Um, but I love working with uh, young children, and uh, I find that the physical education space is uh, a wonderful one to think about uh, social 
growth and learning. Um, and it's a wonderful place to really practice all forms of, of equity and think carefully about belonging and to see how it happens. So yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. We are excited to have a poet in the house, which is really cool. Sherry does some great work. So if you don't know her, follow her at Edified Listener, right? Is that the right one? All right. And last but certainly not least, on her way to her doctorate, so that we could say there are two doctors in the house, we have Val Brown, who has a list of achievements that we don't have enough time to go over, but you may know her from Clear to Air. Val, want to talk to us about what's going on? Sure, Val Brown, she, her. I am coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina, so happy to have at least a little bit of a North Carolina uh, connection. I um, am the principal academic officer for a nonprofit that supports anti-racist education. And y'all had such glowing things to say about the two hosts that we're working with. And I was like, oh, they brought on three Black women to talk to them about whiteness. Cool. Let's <laughs> figure out how to make this work. So um, happy to be here, to be in community with you all today and looking forward to the conversation. Love it. So the idea we have here is that we're going to break down identity. Steve and I are going to ask people from the identity groups uh, and have them come on and give them their time to share their expertise if they are willing so we can be better teachers and also have our classrooms and students impacted. All right, Stephen, anything I missed with that? No, outside of just the gist of our format. Um, obviously, we just had our introductions of our lovely guests. And from there, we're going to go cover like what's the beef? So what are the questions we're trying to answer? or ask and kind of open up that discussion and dialogue to have a better understanding of where we all come from. Um, and then after that, we're gonna focus on some action items or like resources or things that people should be checking out to make sure that they're doing the best that they can as educators in the classroom to make sure that they're setting up the environment that's best for the students that they're supposed to be served. So the first identity we are gonna go over is race for the series. I think that's uh, a major one is something we really want to work on. Uh, Dr. Blackshear had a great, fantastic paper called Shape So White and raised a lot of questions about our professional organizations. But even at the individual level, coming from my identity, which is white, heterosexual, cisgender, male, uh, able, I believe, able-bodied uh, in there, it's interesting when we talk about identities and we talk about dominant groups, when you are in the dominant group, you tend not to think about that identity. So for those listening, uh, an easy one would be when we talk about ableism, right? Most of us are able-bodied. We don't think about that. We don't think about the ability that we could just wake up, get out of bed, brush your teeth, take a shower, whatever, get dressed, carry whatever it is to work and, and go. It just is normal it's what we are it's what most people around us are so it doesn't stick out we don't think about it just what we are and i think when we talk about whiteness in america specifically i guess we have to really talk about that although dr black share share you'll be able to have more of a worldwide perspective but in america white has been the majority and when i have been part you know up until the last i don't know 10 years i never thought about being white. It just was. So I think 
trying to figure that out has been a little challenging for me. Stephen, you want to talk about your experience before we get to what is whiteness and try to get that going? Only if I'm allowed to challenge real quick something that you just said. Is that, I think that'll, I think it'll be healthy. So I heard you say that um, up until recently, you didn't think about being white. And I, what I would like to challenge all white people to do more honestly is to, to check on if you actually mean that. Because let's say like you might not go to an all black space because you might not feel comfortable there. And that might be because you recognize whiteness. You might not um, you know, have your kids go to a certain school because you'd recognize that that school might be deemed less desirable because it has fewer white students. And so um, what made me think about that is uh, you mentioned that, you know, most of us are able-bodied and I have a, a hidden disability that I think about every day, but it's not like it's not prominent. So I don't, you know, it doesn't, like I've learned how to manage it and go around it. And that's what helps make the connection between how, how honest are we being if we say like, we haven't thought about being white before when in actuality we make decisions about that even though we don't name it. Does that? Yeah, that makes sense. Hit? Yeah. And I would say that I guess being part of the majority that being white and having those decisions to make happens less for me than it would for other people. Because um, you're right. I mean, I obviously I know I'm white and I know that other people in the world are not white. So it's not that I, it was this fact that I didn't know. And I'm definitely, everything you said about where I go and, and where I spend my time and who I spend my time with has been impacted by that. It just wasn't something that was as explicit in my life that was pointed out where some of the other things were, I guess. Stephen, what do you think? Thank you, Val. By the way, Sherry and Dr. Blackshear, if you have anything, jump in, push back, make it uncomfortable. It'll be fantastic. Yeah, I'm fine with uh, being uncomfortable. <laughs> um, interestingly enough, I've thought about it more and more over the years, but as I went through undergrad and like graduate school, I noticed it more so. Before that point, you just thought it was a state of being. Like you didn't really understand it. It, it turned into like a, uh, depending who you're having a discussion with, it always turns into like a white versus black thing instead of like a cultural thing of like understanding the differences between that. It would be always like the typical arguments that you always hear about like, well, why is there a black history month? There should be a white history month. And you're just kind of like, that just seems weird, but you're just like, oh, that's just normal behavior for the people that you're around because that's who you're around. And as I mentioned, I was very specific about saying central Pennsylvania because Pennsylvania is also like one of the most interesting states in how sometimes people aren't aware of the different groups that are active. So in where I grew up, it was very common that actually there were still different branches of like the KKK or like different white supremacist groups that were active that you didn't know about. Um, I know just for an example, my mom was horrified when she drove past her grandfather's house after he passed away and people came out in robes. 
like they're a part of the KKK. And then there was like that operation uh, just outside of the town where I went to high school that was known that there were sections over there that they had little rallies and stuff like that. So for me growing up in that, I had no idea probably up until I'm um, 23, 24 of how hard it is for people from in that area to actually get out of racist thought. You're just like born into it, it's normal, and it's hard to challenge it. So for me, it's always been a struggle with family and people that I grew up with because you start to see and understand like a lot of the stuff that you were taught and a lot of stuff that you understood was messed up. So having those conversations was always a hard part. So much of me still has to grow but part of me always will struggle knowing that there's so many people that aren't going to make the choice to grow. They're not going to have these discussions and they're not going to, how shall we say, open up. And I think that's the interesting part where I'm at now being in Philadelphia and understanding how many teachers do fit in that mindset. And Philadelphia student populations, I think roughly 50 to 60% black. 30% white. So like it's kind of starting to balance out, but it's still a predominantly black school filled with a vast majority of white teachers and white administrators. So it's interesting. Any comments before we delve into what exactly whiteness is? Sorry, I have another one. <laughs> but and then I'll be quiet. But oh, I just I wanted to <laughs> Well, I wanted to name for any listeners that I think we all here have a, a high level of trust with one another to be able to engage as honestly as we have so far, right? Like, um, I consider Justin a really good friend. So being able to push back in these conversations seems easy. And, you know, Justin invited me in a conversation with Steven. And so you laying out there, like your, your past and what you're grappling with, I think, really demonstrates high levels of trust. And I know that that's hard to, you know, start from that point. And so just encouraging listeners, like you'll get there if you lean into these conversations. But um, I think we all feel very comfortable with each other to be honest, and, and that's important to name. Other than you, but yeah, jump in whenever you talk, whenever you want. All right, so let's go into whiteness. What is whiteness? Does anyone? want to discuss it. I have some definitions written down if you would like me to read it. Um, but I really want to find out from y'all, what are your thoughts on whiteness? Um, my, my first thought is dominant culture. Um, because we, we tend to think, oh, whiteness, oh, that's white people. But it's more than that. It's so much more than that. It's this comprehensive culture that uh, I certainly grew up in, although I live in, in Europe now, I grew up in the United States and I grew up in this culture of whiteness and, and you know, all the things that that means in terms of how I, how I understand what it means to succeed, how I, uh, my understanding of, uh, like, yeah, my picture of success is is belongs to that culture. My 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 idea of what uh, 
beauty and uh, you know physical beauty, um, what relationships, and I mean heterosexual relationships, right? I mean it's a very so there 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 are all of these these dimensions of culture that um, so often we hear it described as the water in which we swim, and and that's the part that I think it it takes practice in in understanding and, and being able to recognize, but once you do, you can't unsee it. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's where I'm coming from. Dr. Blackshear? I like Sherry's take on um, dominant culture. Um, and I'll add to that where everyone must align to that, right? Even folks who were not considered white, you think of the Italians, you think of um, the Irish when they first came to the United States, that they were not considered white. And slowly over time through assimilation um, to eliminate or soften the um, prejudices and the discriminations based on culture, not necessarily race at that time. Um, and so it's, it's not only the dominant culture, but the dominant culture dictating what's right, what's accurate, what's, what is um, the model, whether it's achievement, um, beauty, um, thought, and anything counter to that um, is basically detrimental in all facets of, of, of our way of being. And when you see counters to um, whiteness, if it's not exploited um, by white people, um, then there's something deficient. And we can talk about, you know, white women wearing braids, um, white people, white kids being one of the number one um, listeners of hip hop music. And you know, we could just go down the line. And so I think that it is this false notion of what is correct, what is accurate, um, just because um, a group of people says so. And so I think that um, because of the oppression and the systems that it's really, for me, it's really a sign of inferiority, right? You, you kind of project um, insecurities on others to build yourself up. And so if you, I think if you really look at some of the behaviors um, that are under the umbrella of whiteness, you will recognize that these um, individuals who buy into this notion, and they don't have to be white people, a lot of black people and other people buy into whiteness, <clears throat> where they're actually um, crumbling inside, they actually have, a, a, for me, a sense of um, a lack of soul um, in a spiritual sense that there is a need to center themselves 
um, and, and, and uplift themselves at the harm of others just just to, you know, for lack of a better word or better words, to stroke their ego to make themselves feel better. And so that's what I see a lot of whiteness as a concept um, in my everyday um, experiences. Val, what do you have to add? Um, I'm going to uh, read a quote from George Lipsitz, um, who wrote in The Possessive Investment in Whiteness. Um, People can be imprisoned effectively by being incarcerated behind stone walls and iron bars. Less obvious but no less effective, however, are the ways in which people can be confined and constrained even more securely and even more surely by ideas, images, signs, symbols, and stories. And and thinking about the ways in which um, people invest in whiteness. And and I want to, even though I think it's um, impossible and and necessary, I, I want to support white people in separating like white people from whiteness, right? I think that you get really caught up in that because once you start talking about whiteness, the defensives go up, you're like, you're talking about me as a human, you know, et cetera. And I think that really does damage in actually even having the conversation about what a white supremacist culture does to all people. Um, and so to to both of the speakers before me, the, the points um, specifically around folks who were not considered white before and knowing that that granted them some advantages um, that, you know, you don't want to look away from, right? And so how invested do we get in these advantages? So much so to Dr. Blackshear's point that that we lose some of our soul and we give up um, some of our humanness in order to maintain the sense of superiority. So we may have had this conversation once or twice before, Val. Can you separate being white from whiteness? Can you do that? No. No. It's like the same way I can't separate, you know, my blackness. Like it's just a part of me, right? And I think that's going to be really hard. That's that's double work on y'all. Y'all got double work. (laughs) That's all I got. (laughs) Yeah, and I think we could also add Jewish people, Shay, I'll give you one second. Uh, we could also put Jewish people because that's one of my identities. And you look at Jewish people in America and there have been some Jewish people who are walking right along with Martin Luther King, right? With Dr. King right up front, rabbis doing their thing. And yet the bulk of Jewish people have been allowed to assimilate and have fully done that, accepting all the rewards with that. The same thing, again, my great-grandparents were Italian came straight from Italy. They assimilated into white culture because it gave them an advantage. So I think part of it is when you do have the advantage and you're able to, most people, it's about self-preservation. And I I get that, but we do have to name it and understand it and know that if that's what you're doing, then you're harming others in order to get ahead for yourself, which I think is something we need to talk about. But that's one of those questions that always get me is, can we separate being white from whiteness? Sherry? Um, One thing that I find that I'm finding helpful for folks who are really struggling with this, like, well, you know, who who, who are struggling with this notion of whiteness and uh, white people who are struggling with with being called white, um, who almost take offense at, why am I suddenly white? 
here's a different approach. Try this. If you are heterosexual, that's also a dominant culture in the United States. And if you are heterosexual, then you probably aren't thinking about queer folks and queer habits, but you need to understand how your perspective on on things and the, what is correct and what is right and how things are done is shaped by a heterosexual point of view. And, and the same is true for whiteness works that way. It's this umbrella thing that tells you, that gives you all these signals. This is how you need to behave. This is, this is how, this is, these are the structures in which we are operating socially. And so, so they're they're very similar. So I think that if folks are are struggling with with that, take a different take the, try that. Try looking at uh, if you are heterosexual, what does that mean? And I want to I want to suggest that you probably only think about it when you are confronted with something that is not that. When suddenly you have to think about oh that person's gay or 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 trans or what does that mean? That that's so. Um, it's really when that othering occurs that we can begin to uh, unlock what the dominant culture actually is. Can I say something um, before we get too far away from Justin's point? You said, you know, you understand people taking advantages of the privileges offered to them, you know, by accepting whiteness or assuming that identity. And I think that to me speaks to the value that they place not only on whiteness, but on the value they place on everything else, including blackness, right? And so Justin and I were friends before this moment, but we really became friends after this moment. I like <laughs> was punishing myself on Twitter and I asked a question that shows up in the research, you know, what, what, how much would you require in compensation if you woke up and you were black, right? And Sherry's pointing because she remembers this very horrific moment. And um, Justin actually had the lowest number and your number was 500,000. I don't know if you remember that. And um, you said that it was your number. Um, you would have had zero, but you got to pay off your house. And so there's, <laughs> there's that. Whereas other folks had upwards of $50 million. And I think that that is a, an actual demonstration of the value of whiteness in this culture, so much so that your life is worth tens of millions more dollars than mine, or at least your perception of your life is, right? And so I think that really challenges us to, to, to really think, like, how do we perceive Black and brown people's lives, you know? And in that choice to choose whiteness, we must think they're really terrible. That's, that's all I got. Well, who did the blue eyes, brown eyes experiment? Um, that teacher was in the front of the group one time and I was watching. She said, you know, white people stand up if you would willingly exchange bodies or become black. And nobody stood up. And she goes, then you obviously know there's an issue. You know something is going on. There's a reason why you're not standing. And for me, that right there, most white people have not been able to really say that out loud to themselves. That, really was, that was Jane Elliott. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, she's been, doing, who's been doing anti-racist work, you know, before it, you know, became popular. <laughs> yeah. And if you look at her experiment and 
it's on PBS. I believe they show it uh, every year. It was amazing where she tried to have her students feel being othered, like what Sherry was talking about. So she set up an experiment and told all the brown eye kids they were better one day and blah, blah, blah. And you saw the breakdown and how it came. But really at the core, she was creating empathy for the students, for people that they didn't look and act like. And, you know, the students really appreciate and talk about that in 30 years later, the interview. But I think we understand that there is a problem. And from what Val's talking about with the number, you know, we understand from what Jane Elliott was saying when people don't stand up. So I guess the question is, once you understand, why are you doing something to help? I, just to kind of add on, just from when Sherry mentioned othering and that's normal part of whiteness, everyday thing. So for like most people, when you actually have those conversations, go back to like my experiences growing up, you can't bring up anything that challenges that notion that the people in the other category are not abnormal because you have to fit that narrative that what you're doing is right. And every single time I've had one of those discussions just to like flip or put people in other people's shoes, like you're, you're going to have people fighting back. Um, I know that's been constantly throughout family, people I grew up where I tried to challenge the notion of my parents where they think everything that they did is 100% dedicated to hard work. Partially true. As I'll usually tell most people, my parents were teenage parents in high school, but they also grew up in central Pennsylvania in Lancaster County, an abnormality in the entire country where you do not have to have a college degree to make six figures, where you have accessibility and different types of resources and like backings. And every time you point that out and I'd be like, all right, now let's go to, at that time, comparisons of like when I was in the South Bronx and they're like, well, why aren't people working harder or doing this? Like, here, let's go down and compare the experiences. I guarantee if you would flip flop positions, you would not be where you're at today. I would not be going to college. This would not be the same experience. We wouldn't even have this discussion from this line. It'd be the total flip flop. <laughs> and it would always get to the point where they get so frustrated and mad because they have to confront that reality that they just totally just refuse to continue and run off. My mom has gotten much better, but my dad has cycled down worse. Like my dad's got worse over the years over these discussions, whereas my mom has gotten a lot better and she's starting to actually have open conversations, which is great. So just to throw it out on from a cisgender white male who grew up in whiteness central, that sometimes these discussions will literally blow up your relationships. Like I have a great relationship with my mom. I do not have a functioning relationship with my dad. And that's fine. I'm fine with that. But you also have to be aware that you will burn some relationships and it's okay. Like there are certain family members and people I was friends with. I don't care that I have interactions with them anymore because that's just going to get to a point that it's not going to turn. Still got love for them. Don't hate them but it's okay to drop those relationships. So I've been there. So just saying it's okay to have those moments. Yeah. And it's difficult, especially with the people who raised you because I have very assimilationist family. So it's, it's very hard when they brought you into this world, they protected you when you were the most vulnerable and now you're challenging their thoughts and, and almost to them, you're challenging their upbringing of you, which it's difficult. Uh, Let's keep this moving, though. 
I want to, can we talk about how whiteness shows up in schools since this is a podcast geared towards school? Canada. Um, curriculum, standards, teachers, behaviors, um, discipline, everything is centered around whiteness in American public schools, period. Um, I mean, just from a curriculum, the curriculum writers are white. The standard writers are white. The textbook writers are white. Most of the teachers are white. Um, and so when you have that narrative interwoven through K-12 public school education, everything is centered around whiteness, um, the delivery, the concepts. And I'll give you an, an example. And I went to Catholic schools, which I won't say are too much better um, as far as a, a whiteness model. Um, but, you know, not knowing that Eli Whitney was bl a black man just based on reading the textbook. It wasn't until the teacher showed a video and we were, what? Eli Whitney is black because there was no descriptor in the book that could have instilled some black pride with most of the students and the textbook um, creators who were white, um, they leave out these, these things, these important details. And so we see it, you know, we see it, we've seen it in the past, we see it, see it currently, you see the issues in Texas, but that's a national trend. This is not something new or, that only belongs to Texas. And so everything in American public school education is centered around whiteness. Remember segregation, black people were not supposed to be in American public. It was not designed for black people. And so everything in education is centered around whiteness, everything. Dr. Blackshear said, do you have some time? <laughs> <laughs> that was fabulous. Um, I want to connect both to that point and to Stephen's earlier point um, about the importance of having these conversations in K-12 spaces, right? So Stephen, you shared the story of your family and your dad specifically, who has seems to be like cycling downward in your words in terms of openness to these conversations. And so given that um, most adults um, are not educators by by profession, the the just the requirement outside of your um, outside of your area of expertise to learn about these things is just it's not one. We have no requirement to do that in our society. We can just go do our jobs, learn about our jobs, and stay in our bubbles. And so K twelve is really the only opportunities that we have to have structured conversations like these, where where students can start to like grapple with what they're learning and what questions they have. And I think that's really important for us to um, take advantage of. And so to to Dr. Blackshear's point, like if if students are empowered to ask questions about the curriculum, if they are empowered to like challenge maybe the ways in which something is presented or the way the teacher is talking to someone, um, and challenge in a way like asking questions, right? Then we can we can develop this ability to have these meaningful conversations so that it carries on into adulthood, and we're not stuck with within our bubbles and and going backwards in your words, even. Um, because we haven't exposed ourselves to anyone else.
Terry, you have anything to add? You know, something I keep I keep thinking about again in my my own situation is is a little bit different because I'm teaching um, outside the United States. However, it is an American school, so that means that you know we have this American bias, right? Um, and and I'm still kind of stuck on this notion of how challenging it is for the for folks that I work with, and I think this is true in a lot of international schools, to recognize the whiteness that pervades our systems. And so when, when that whiteness is all encompassing, be finding ways to acknowledge it it's 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 still it's still challenging and that's you know beyond you know beyond the fact of things that are that seem evident like oh yes we're going to recognize black history month okay um but you know like it it getting beyond these um these specific these these uh, i want to say almost micro markers of 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 different identities in our communities and and actually dealing with you know what is in our curriculum how is that transporting these these notions of whiteness um, so i'm really um thinking a lot about the process by which we begin to break apart and i think what um what val what val just mentioned about that freedom to question and i want to say woo please let this happen in our faculty meetings you know having students question but can we as a, as faculty as adults with each other can we be brave enough to push back to say i have a question about that what are our assumptions that that's the kind of thing that i i really would love to champion but i'm also acknowledging that whew, that's a more than a notion yeah i think when we get to the specifics of what dr black she was saying like if we look at our curriculum, we look at our units. We have soccer, we have football. You look at the team sports we choose, very Eurocentric, very North American curriculum. Not many teachers are breaking away. That would be a specific example. When we look at discipline, we know the numbers. We know our black and brown students are getting suspended, a higher numbers, higher referrals, all that and a lot of it makes you wonder where is the bias and why is this going on because i mean kids are kids in general so why are some getting in trouble more than others and you would sit there and go well you look at whiteness that's there's a dominant person everyone underneath needs to submit be subordinate sit down keep your mouth closed you don't question just like you always say. And when you do, that's a problem. You're no longer, like you're not, you're not able to think. We are not raising thinkers. We are raising people who say yes to their superior and keep them moving. And that's part of whiteness. I want to just jump in and say discipline for minor infractions were the same minor infractions that white students engage in. They're overlooked. They're given the benefit of the doubt their excuses and you just, there's a laundry list of, um, they weren't that bad, they didn't do that much, but minor infractions, black students 
are being um, black and brown students are suspended um, for minor infractions. So I do want to make that point. These aren't, you know, the egregious, they're, they're you know, disruptive behaviors across groups. Um, but when it's the same or similar infraction, the discipline is always tougher along the spectrum for black and brown students. And that's in the data. Like there's research, there's data supporting that statement. Val? I just want to connect something that um, several of you have mentioned. Uh, Sherry, you talked about, you know, it's more than a notion to speak out about whiteness and question it. And, you know, I was like, man, you know, white people questioning whiteness. Great. We should definitely do that. And Stephen also mentioned the cost of doing that. Right. So being separated from your community, you know, the community that raised you or whatever, because you were speaking out against it. And I think that is something that, um, we have to have to understand as folks in liberation work, specifically around racial justice, it's a lot to give up relationships with your family. I didn't have to do it in this fight. I got my family with me the whole way. We can talk about it at Thanksgiving dinner. I never have to worry. So I, I, it's hard for me to like put myself in that place where I am separating from my family because their views are so problematic, right? And so creating spaces of community where folks who have to do that um, I think is really important so that they have a place to land when they're giving up everything else that they already know. Just some things to kind of expand upon and connect um, between actually all four. So if you're questioning, there's also another thing that I think should be discussed as challenging. So developing those moments of courage to, and skills for people to recognize when it when they should challenge. I think that's a huge one and people don't know under, understand when. And in our society, you see a lot of people resort to pulling out a phone and recording instantly, which in some instances can be beneficial, but in others, it's not really challenging anything. Um, so developing those habits for people to be comfortable challenging, because like you mentioned before, whiteness is about hierarchy. Um, we can go back through how many historical examples of how whiteness evolved into fascism and developing hierarchies and like putting people in certain positions throughout society. That's one thing. Uh, another one with the minor infractions, sometimes they're just things that aren't even disruptive or anything academic related at all. Um, literally just had this discussion two weeks ago. Um, I've recently got promoted to being one of the deans within the school. So also be teaching health and PE and also one of the deans. And we were going through different infractions and stuff. And it seemed like I was challenging every single thing that was sent from the district down to us as like an outline. I was like, this makes no sense. This is stupid. Like, why are we even focusing on this? This language is horrible. Um, I could share with you guys later what the document was, but the one we came down to was dress code. It was the only one that was like, eliminate it. And the person that's coming from the district to help us set this up, when I was giving out examples of how throughout the district, it's all so different and like specific schools that have a, a higher demographic of white students tend to have the least restrictive or a non-existent dress code, even though you're supposed to have one, quote unquote. So they were trying to still focus on having school uniforms, which I'm understand that they can be useful, but only if it's an option. If it's a force, 100% always against it. Um, but let's look at the stats behind that. How many students get excluded in Philadelphia 
just because of what they wear, whether it's a hoodie or their out of school uniform code, which I could go back to numerous instances from the charter school I used to teach at, where they would literally kick kids out of the building as soon as they got there. So you're kicking kids out that are already quote unquote at risk youth, according to you, from getting their education because they're not 100% in school uniform. I used to have that argument all the time. So, Stephen, I'm on the this current point. I'm on the fence with the uniforms where you're like, you're completely, because, and I've experienced wearing uniforms um, in from K through eight, but, mm-hmm. and I've, and I've seen, and I've taught in schools where they're wearing uniforms um, and some were, were not wearing uniforms, but I, I do think a lot of that has to do with class and culture. So imagine the, you know, the poor family where clothing and clean clothing is a problem. Some students don't come to school because they, they don't have clean clothing or they don't have enough. And so I think for some poor students, the uniform, I don't think it's erasing their identity, but it's allowing them not to be picked on or assessed mm-hmm according to the clothing that they wear. Now, students can still manipulate that by shoes and jewelry and things of that nature, but the uniform itself, I do think in certain situations, it cuts down on the the poor or struggling student, um, financially struggling student um, from being outed, so to speak, where they can kind of blend in. Um, And I think depending on the age, especially in middle school where, where a lot of the clothing issues become problematic. And so I do think that in context and who's delivering and how the uniforms are being delivered and, and, and things of that nature. So just want to give you that something to think about. I'll, I'll just reword it as I'm against them. If you're penalizing students and preventing them from getting an education, that's like my main argument against it. It's like if if you force it and you're preventing kids from getting an education because they're not re- wearing the right color shirt that day. Agree. I agree with that. Why? Yeah. So that's where I'm at. But I agree hundred percent what you said. Um, I'm, I'm sitting with the, yeah, it did. Oh, sorry. No, I was just thinking out loud. I'm good. Floor is I'm, I'm sitting with that um, least restrictive environment. And it wasn't until I got to college that I, knew that high schools weren't all surrounded by barbed wire fences like mine. That was like a revelation. Oh, Val, I must, I must say this. So I'm from Detroit and we, my, my parents sent us to Catholic schools and Mumford, many of you all are, some of you are aware of Mumford because Eddie Murphy wore Mumford sweatshirt in um, trading places or one of his movies in the eighties. And I went to visit, um, my neighbors went to the, to the school and I went and I was, I, I could not believe that they had metal detectors in the school because my school did not. And my school was predominantly black. It was just a Catholic school, right? I was in disbelief and I came home to my father and I said, thank you for making the sacrifices to send us to, to, the Catholic schools, because I could not imagine it was very, it was prison-like. I'm like, I had to walk through a metal detector. They're checking my, and so I think 
you're already setting. We expect you to be thugs and criminals. This is not a place for education. And we're ready to attack you if you get out of line. I, I, I could not, I could not believe that they had metal detectors and mm-hmm. that children had to walk through metal detectors and check their bags and purses every single day. And so Val, I hear you. As a young person, you know, as a, as a teen going to that school, I didn't pay that. I didn't pay it that much mind. I, you know, it was just normalized for me. Like all of my schools were kind of like that. So it was super normal. Um, but it speaks to what the, the, what the adults in the building thought of us. And also when I realized there was difference in people's experience, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't disappointed in how I was reared because I had a identity affirming positive experience um, in school. I was mad that people thought I wasn't worthy of equal opportunity as other folks. So, okay, you don't have to let me in your school, but did you have to put a barbed wire fence around it? You know, that's my thought. Before we get to the to the final question, I think Stephen, we're going on an hour, it should be good. I also want to say for health curriculums, when we look at whiteness, you look at the food plate, what are the foods that we talk about in the food groups? Are there any other, does everyone eat just apples and bananas? And like, do we, is, is there a plantain? Can I get some kind of food in this that is not strictly white? So I think when we look at whiteness, and again, this is an hour, so we don't have time to dissect everything, but like Dr. Blackshear said, when you look at discipline, you can find out where whiteness shows its head. When you look at your curriculums of the sports you go over, the foods and how, I mean, you go over and over and over each part and actively look. If you could take one thing away from this podcast is put on your critical race lens and look at it. Just look at it and say, is this from a white dominated stance? And if you start looking at that, you will start to understand. You know, only white people eat apples. That's it. I don't know why anyone else. Does. Anyway, and we could get into. So I don't want to get sidetracked or derailed by the chat, but in general, make sure you're looking at your stuff and, and try to find out if you were not white, would this relate directly to you in whatever it is you're teaching? Which brings us to the final part. What should we be doing in schools? As teachers, so I am a health or phys ed teacher listening, because that's probably the only people, we'll have like seven people listening, but that's enough for me. Uh, What should we be doing when I get back to school in September, August, or wherever? How am I going to challenge whiteness? What should I be looking at? What are actionable steps to be taking? Who wants to take this one first? I'll I'll go first to keep the bar low for me, and then <laughs> y'all can y'all, y'all can make it better. No, 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 no. I'm just going. Just, that's why I volunteer. Um, I thought of two things. One related to developing that consciousness that you talked about. I think white folks should ask themselves specifically for our American context. What does it mean to be white in America? Um, I always have to think about what it means to be black in America. And I think as white people grapple with their racial identity and what it means in terms of power, privilege, access, um, that's something to consider. And then the second thing that I thought of is that you need a mirror, right? You need someone who can be a mirror to you um, when you are missing something, right? So 
do you have a colleague that can say, hey, you know, I'm checking to see if I'm being super biased toward my, you know, in favor of my white boys with discipline. Can you come and just watch me interact with them occasionally and just let me know what you see? And so someone who can be another set, uh, you know, an observation um, might be helpful in you starting to recognize your own patterns. My first, similar to, to what Val just said, and I'm really, I'm, I'm envisioning, you know, those first days back in my own school. And, and I really, I, first of all, I really want people to look around. What do you notice? And when, when whiteness is dominant, what you don't notice is absence. You don't notice the absence of color because, hey, whiteness, right? And so I really, really want people to look around who is in the room and you know when you switch rooms when you go from one room to the next some things may not change like there still is no person of color they're still there you know um and and i want folks to 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 recognize that and realize that has consequences all right so again it asks me you know asking what does it mean to be white but in, in my case particular, I really want people to simply notice that that's who's in the room. And that's almost to the exclusion of ever, almost every other group. So um, uh, that's one thing. I'm thinking also about my, my own classes, right? So when I get my first, my kids together the first few times, I, for me, it's really important to, to, um, to be open with my students so that they know that we can come, we can converse with each other openly. So that means students, my youngest students are four. Um, and I, I've had children who say, why are you so brown? You know, or, you know, or they or they want to know, well, where where do you come from? Um, because it doesn't, and so that that is so important to me. And I love those questions because then I, and I can I can respond to them, but I want to make that. A, like a, a positive norm, like the p capacity to to raise the question, to 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 talk with each other, and to to respect, uh, you know, all the different ways in which we contribute to our community. I'm gonna pick up where Sherry left off. I think for me, what I find helpful, or what I have found helpful, I've actually developed an, an analysis that I've been working with educators in the US, um, but to ask questions. And not only about your, your curriculum, your lesson plans, your delivery, your interactions, why am I doing this? What, what, what is, the, the whys are very important, but asking your students because students know and and i don't mean if you don't have a good rapport or if it's a, 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 a it's already a power dynamic no matter what the race of the teacher is and so i think there are ways to do that if you have a good rapport you might just how how do i make you feel what are some things that i'm doing that may be detrimental or you can do some anonymous poll or survey and your students know, and a lot of the disciplinary or acting out behaviors that we see among Black students is because they don't know how to articulate 
the racism that they're experiencing every single day in that educational environment. They haven't developed the, the, the words to communicate um, effectively about what's going on. And these are children as young as the early primary years through high school. And so I really think you need to ask the students, am I, what, how, how, how do I make you feel? I think that's a, a big question. And to give some examples, those of you who have taught, you hear students and they'll come and complain about another teacher. And I'll say, I say the same things to you. And they say, well, it's how you say it. You don't say it like that. Those kids haven't really developed the language to say they're being racist towards me. Um, and but, but they do know that there is some type of disparity and equity and equality, ill treatment um, from the teacher. And students understand this very early on. And so I think that educators need to ask, why are they there? Are they, is their intent to do no harm? And really ask, and that's something you can do, and that should be done over the course of the semester, not a, at the beginning and the end. This should be a, a check-in. And hopefully soliciting that information, that feedback where students can give suggestions on change. And so I think you, you must center the students and really want to get that feedback. I mean, I know the negative feedback can, um, you know, make us feel some type of way. I think it's different when it's um, a black educator and white students, but um, really tap into the, the children. Now, if they're acting out, we like to blame it on something that's at home but often it's something that's going on in the classroom, in the school. And so I think that really, and that's really getting to know your students beyond their name and their neighborhood. And so I think teachers can check in with students and students will be honest, they will tell you. And they, racism might, might not be the word, but if, you, if they say, you know, they make me feel bad or they're demeaning, or I feel like, is teachers harder on me than they are um, the white students? Listen to those um, responses. They will be truthful if you ask in the right way, depending on your student body. I love that. Uh, I'm a firm believer in those with power over should constantly be checking in with power under, whether it's admin with teachers, teachers with students, the board with whoever, just in general. The, those formative check-ins, like you said, if it's summative, it's too late. If it's at the end, you're already past it. So I would, I, do, I teach, well, with the old kids in my old school, I taught them all year. So every uh, like six weeks, we would have a questionnaire. How much do you feel Mr. S likes you? Uh, and Sherry, you know, we've discussed this before. How much do you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then Based on that, you can have some conversations with the kids. I remember specifically one kid I asked, you know, why did you put down a two out of five that whatever? And he goes, well, you never um, listen to me when you ask about ideas for games or activities. And I'm not going to argue with the kid. I'm not going to try to sit there and say, no, remember that? Thank you. And then keep it moving. And then I made sure in the future that I took the child's ideas. And, and then when I checked in again, it went up to a five. 
So again, that idea of checking in, it's, it's really not that hard. And it could be with clickers, it could be with Google Forms. There are a million ways to check in, but definitely do that. I think for me, two parts. If you're gonna look at teachers, how can you be an ally, a comrade, whatever term word that we wanna go with nowadays. But the idea is how are you showing up for the teachers in your school that are teachers of color? So how, how do they know, A, they could go to you if there's an issue and you can have frank, honest conversations. How in meetings in the lunchroom, are you speaking up so that they don't have to? Uh, and again, that would be that, like Sherry's talking about, put on your critical race lenses and look around, actually see what's going on, have an awareness of the situation of facts and power dynamics and all of that, and then step up and do something. So I would say that for your teachers would be the way. And then I feel like for the students, the idea of radical love, right? This idea that I am going to love you as you are when you walk in my class. And it's very hard. The, the ones we like, that's easy. I can like my well-behaved, fantastic kid. Like it's easy to love them. Some of the other kids, it's a little more difficult. So for me, what I've been trying to do uh, when I look at my interactions is make sure, you know how they say, should have five positive interactions to every negative interaction, right? Because we know that the negative one sticks with you. So you wanna make sure you're overbalancing. For me, I make sure my students of color that I'm checking in with them, saying hello when they walk in the door, making sure I'm calling on them first, right? Because we know white males, their hand's gonna go up, they're going to jump in front. They're going to want to talk. They're going to, they're much more acceptable with failure, right? It doesn't impact them as much. And, you know, we know all the studies about who's talking and who's getting picked on all those things, who's validated. So probably I would imagine treating my kids mostly equal, but by going out of my way to make sure that I'm having these positive interactions with my students of color, then I'm actively fostering relationships making sure that I'm focusing on what I want. And again, what I want is just like what Dr. Blackshear said. I want them to feel like they're loved, like they're wanted, like they're listened to, like they're heard, like they're part of the class. So how do I do that? I check in with them. I make sure I'm having my data to support it. And then I'm also making sure what I'm doing with my pedagogy is when I'm having kids come to the front to demonstrate, I have to be aware, who am I picking to come in the front? And why? And again, we have to look at everything we do from how we work questions, who we call on, where we interact, who we're smiling at, all these things. Because again, when we talk about bias, these are the things we don't know because we're not analyzing, we're not looking at ourselves, it's just happening. So what do we do? Record yourself, look at it, keep some data, have somebody come in and check with you, come in and look at your lesson, and observe you. There's low stakes. You don't even have to tell anyone why they're there. Yo, do you mind coming in for 20 minutes and checking my class and just writing a couple notes down on what you see? You know, or, hey, can you see and see how many times I have a positive interaction with a student of color and a negative interaction with a student of color? That simple data. It's not your admin. There's no weight on it. There's no one going to, well, you did it. You're not in trouble. It's literally just trying to get better at your craft. And I think that's one of the things that I'm trying to do actively is look at it, have data, have people tell me, make sure that I'm doing the best I can. Because if I do all that, 
then we get back to that idea of I'm doing less harm. And we're going to harm some no matter what, but we want to lessen it as much as possible. Stephen, what do you have to add? There was a lot to think about. Going back to Dr. Blackshear's comment about how students are reacting and specifically with the younger group, since I used to teach high school and at high school, they would just tell you straight out. No filter. It's fine. You got to express it. And I've been on that end where students would just come down to the gym and be like, yo, so-and-so said this. And I'm like, Why are you down at the gym? And then that's something that I've never fully grappled with is that they're actually expressing an experience with racism with another teacher. And it's something that I think a lot of teachers will tend to push down and they'll take it from the lens of let's think it's coming from a good place. And I think that's a problem that also evolves back to that whole school culture of whiteness. And I know that's seeing that with like the colorblindness comments and stuff like that. Um, but that explains so much more about the different types of behaviors that I witnessed last year um, for, or like two years ago, when we were actually pre-COVID, when I switched to K to eight, and I had K to five, there was a noticeable difference between different classes. So this is completely reflection based off of just what you mentioned, Dr. Blackshear, which should have been more cognizant of at the time, but I noticed predominantly white teachers that brought their students to the gymnasium tended to have the largest behavioral issues compared to black teachers. And now that we're in this discussion about whiteness, why did they act out when they came to me more often? Probably because they were more comfortable to express it. I'm, it's a possibility, but I, there were so many incidents were happening like during that transition from coming to the gym or like coming back that I couldn't understand where it came from. If you ask like students, like what's going on? it's just like a light bulb blew up and I'm like, whoa, that's the kids that as kind of Sherry pointed out in the chat, kind of asked like, what do you want us to understand? And it is hard, but it is hard for like students to really tell you what's going on in those moments. And that's why it's so important for teachers to specifically have these conversations, even in elementary school, because it gives kids tools and resources to really take kind of ownership of their situation and make sure they're taken care of because even though you're in a school, sometimes the adults really aren't there to take care of you. And that's a scary part that I never grappled with going up through school because you're just like, everything was like fine hunky-dory because it's all normal, quote unquote. But I think we just need to be aware look around the room, kind of like Sherry mentioned, and reflect on your experiences, things that have happened, and kind of have an understanding of where it came from. I think that was a huge one. And as I, I think I just demonstrated is even people that have been very aware of this and trying to have a better understanding and do better, everybody's still learning. But you have to kind of demonstrate that learning in your practices too. So uh, to continue and finish, or I'll say it to finish, uh, power sharing was always huge for me because I've had a lot of issues with authority figures throughout my life. 
I didn't get into trouble with law or anything really like that that I'm aware of. Um, but having that ability to share power is like a very empowering moment for other people because they do develop that chance to be courageous in the moment and challenge something. They have that space to question things. They show that they have more ownership of what's going on, that they can change curriculums. They can change things. They can add stuff that you never thought of. It's hard to do because of whiteness, hierarchy, all the other things that have been listed before, but having that space where you give students to share power in a safe and productive way will change your entire environment. At least that's been my experience so far. But I tap out. <laughs> Steven, I do want to just say, be kind to yourself, because earlier you made a comment about you wish, you know, or you, you know, I don't, I don't remember the exact language you use, but it was a, a sense of disappointment that you didn't catch or do something. So I'm just saying, be kind to yourself because, you know, we, we're going to mess up and you're, you're, you're working towards um, equity in your, in your teaching space. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I also I want to second that because I, I may be the oldest person in the room. Um, <laughs> I, I want to claim that. <laughs> but, um, but uh, Stephen, same thing. I mean, I, I think there are so many aspects to, to identity and to the way that we as individuals are able to show up the way our institutions, what they, what they require of us in terms of how we show up. And then there's also just you know, what students demand of us when we're in front, you know, different students demand different things. But all of those things, like I am still learning after so many years in the classroom, I am constantly changing and recognizing, oh, oh, wow, oh, I need to, mm, let me rethink that. Because mm. really this whole notion of sharing power is, is I want to say, um, relatively new in my practice. You know, I mean, there, I imagine it's happened in in different ways over the years, but now it's 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 a a much more conscious decision, and so I just uh, yeah it it's years and years of practice, and we're never there, we're never fully there. So, you know, shout out for when we do have those aha moments, but keep on keeping on. I think it All just right. goes back to my central PA upbringing. <laughs> well, first, we'd like to thank the guests for coming on. Really appreciate all of you and your time. I know lives are super busy. Uh, as a reward for coming on, I'd like to give you like 30 seconds to say whatever you want about anything. It can be anything about this. It can be anything you want people to hear. Again, I don't know what the numbers are going to be like. I'm thinking like, seven to 12 we'll have maybe like if i give it to my mom she might play it a bunch of times but in general i don't know how many people are going to listen but i want to give you the last words of anything you want to talk about doesn't have to be involved specifically around this or it can so why don't we go with val because val likes setting the bar for people <laughs> super low bar i just want to thank you all for um having the space to talk about these things and to making it a prominent addition of your work as phys ed teachers, right? Um, because 
most teachers can opt out of these conversations if they want to, but you all are walking toward it. And I really appreciate that. So here to support all of your efforts. So thank you. And health teachers, health teachers. There's like two health teachers. And also health teachers. Sherry, you want to go next? Yes. Uh, I. This has been... Uh, this has been so great. I have loved it. And it's been such an honor to be with all of you. I'm thrilled to be in the same room um, with, with you. And um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to what becomes of, of this, this effort, this, this podcast series. And uh, I look forward to the dialogue that, that I hope uh, emerges. And um, yeah, I hope to find people come find me on Twitter and let's talk. Love it. Yes, I will tag you on the Twitters as well as Val and Dr. Blackshear and Stephen. Hopefully this will get a dialogue. At least somebody can, you know, say what they liked, what they didn't like, whatever. Doc, what do you have for us? Well, I want to thank you again for centering Black women and using your privilege to elevate our voices. And you all heard my spiel over and over again that um, Black women are needed. Um, when you have a black woman on your side, usually, you know, we're, we're here to the end. We know how to get things done. And I'm not generalizing black women from all spectrums. Um, we, we tend to get things done. And so I just want to, I appreciate you elevating our voices. Um, this is a unique experience. It's like, I mean, I'm not, I don't even feel like this is, you know, it's not work or like, I feel like I could talk, we could talk the rest of the evening. And so thanks, thank you for bringing our um, sistership, our sisterhood and our areas of expertise front and center. So um, much appreciation for that. Well, I think that concludes our discussion. I wanna just kind of continue what Justin was saying. Thank you so much for jumping on here. Uh, it is hopefully going to make a better push in the right direction and have more of these open conversations and hopefully we can build off onto this. But before we go, Justin, do you wanna give a sneak preview of the next one or no? Should we leave that up in the air? I would say let's leave it up in the air and I'll have people coming back for more. All right. Hopefully we'll have more than seven. Hopefully it'll be like 700 by the end of the month, but we'll see. <laughs>